You're listening to Sermons by the Park, a weekly podcast sharing the Word of God as it is proclaimed from the pulpit of Union Congregational Church in East Walpole, Massachusetts. Now here's this week's message. Scripture reading today is uh, from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 19a. I am grateful to Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he judged me faithful and appointed me to his service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and a man of violence. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But for that very reason, I receive mercy so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display the utmost patience, making me an example to those who would come to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm giving you these instructions, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies made earlier about you, so that by following them, you may fight the good fight having faith, and a good conscience. The Word of God. Fight the good fight. Fight the good fight, having faith and good conscience. Paul wrote to his disciple, his spiritual son, Timothy. Faith and good conscience, I think, are the truest measures of a life's worth. Faith and good conscience, because these are the things that are most our own. Faith, the term in Greek is pistis. It means belief. Sometimes it's translated as belief. Um, Oftentimes I think that's how we think about faith first and foremost, is believing an idea or believing in some truths. The idea is that if faith is power and knowledge is power, then faith must be a kind of knowledge. And so we learn to recite the creed. We learn what it means that Christ died for our salvation. We learn these things, and that is supposed to help us grow in faith, that knowledge. And the more knowledge we have, the more power we have. That's at least how I thought about it. Uh, for a long time. There is, um, in the Presbyterian Church, which is where my ordination originally happened, there's a form that every pastor, every minister has to fill out. It's called the Pastor Information Form. And on that form, uh, it asks you to list your leadership competencies, the things that you're good at as a minister. And it gives you all these different options, and you have to choose, like, five things that you're really good at. And um, one of the categories is spiritual maturity. And uh, 
I always liked that category. It sounds, it sounds great, right? It's like, yeah, I'm spiritually mature, right? I've been in the church my whole life. I know all of this stuff about doctrine and all this theology. I am full of knowledge. I am full of faith. I must be spiritually mature. So I, you know, I check that box on my form. <laughs> but lately I've been thinking more about that and thinking the ways in which thinking you have it all figured out is not particularly mature. In fact, thinking you know everything is much more a mark of immaturity, I think, than it is of maturity. So what then is spiritual maturity, I wonder? Well, I think it's having faith, as Paul says. But it's not faith in that sense of, of believing certain things or having a certain kind of knowledge. No, faith is about trust. Faith is about what we rely upon that is not in us. Faith draws us out of ourselves to something greater. And so the opposite of faith may be unbelief. It may, to some extent, be a certain kind of ignorance. We just don't know about certain things. But I think the real opposite of faith is not ignorance, it's fear. It's the lack of trust and assurance. Fear is what turns us away from the things beyond ourselves and back towards ourselves. It turns us into, into individuals who are, who are seeking to, to preserve ourselves from the dangers of the world around us. And fear is, of course, an important part of human survival. It's important to be afraid of things like bears or fire or, well, rain, but not, not today, not here today. We're not going to have rain here today. I've been thinking about fear, too, because as much as we remember 9-11, that day that we just need to say the numbers and we all know what we're thinking of, as much as we remember that as a day of great fear, it really begat a whole age of fear. Two decades of wars fought to try to right the wrong of that day to help us to live without terror, to live without fear. We waged war as a nation and what did it wreak? As a nation, we seem more fearful than ever, not necessarily of those outside, but of our neighbors, of those who think differently than us, who live differently than us. We've been conditioned over these many years to live in this fearful way. I think about this as I, I greeted students this week at UML, these college freshmen who were born after 9-11, the only world they have ever known is after that date. But of course, there was also the other side of that. There was that September 12th feeling. You remember that feeling, that feeling of great national unity. Yes, there was sorrow and there was mourning and there was shock, but we also felt a, a collective sense of purpose. We said, we are one. We are one. Each of us placing faith in this idea of unity 
We said that we would never forget, and, and we certainly haven't. We certainly haven't. But sometimes I wonder if we're remembering only the fear and not the reliance upon one another. I remember the, the speech that the president gave shortly thereafter was, a, was a, a very important speech. It set the tone for this age because it, too, included both that idea that we were going to defeat fear. A former president a long time ago said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Well, after 9-11, we were told we have to defeat fear itself. But then the way we were supposed to do that, we were told, was to live our lives, hug your children. And that was, that was it. And that seemed a little strange because that was a moment of collective unity and collective purpose, but instead we were told to turn back towards ourselves instead of towards our neighbors. And there were some wonderful moments as I was rereading that speech this week. There were wonderful moments of pointing out how people in India and Korea gathered to mourn for the lives lost on September 11th. There was this unity of the world in mourning against this horrific act. But we lost sight of that. We lost sight of it when, when we immediately said, no, it's us and them. We're drawing a line in the sand. America, as a global superpower, will lead the way into this new age. But now we see that that trajectory has not led us to a world that is less fearful. By all measures today, America is what is referred to as a low-trust society. I love that term, low-trust. It means that we have, um, collectively speaking, less faith in institutions like government or the church or uh, banking, etc., or even things like, nowadays, social media, these other institutions that have become things that we use and rely upon other people with, things that draw us out of ourselves. We more and more tend to be afraid of those things. But that's because I think what we have, when we are called to put our faith in these institutions over and over again, we have been let down. We have been let down on both sides of the ideological spectrum by our government at various times. We have been let down by the church at various times, whether that be by the leaders in the church or, or the conflicts within the congregation, maybe someone who you just don't get along with, who, who makes it just not a joy to be here together, to share life together. We, we know these experiences exist. But in putting our faith in an idealized version of these institutions, we, we don't allow for the possibility that there is brokenness in them, and so our faith is easily shattered. It is easily and uh, recognized as fragile. And it keeps us from really looking around us, really seeing but the kind of faith that Paul is talking about, the kind of faith that Christ taught his disciples to have, the kind of faith that Christ enables us even today to have is the kind that allows us to see with a greater vision. It allows us to recognize the people who, 
who maybe are standing right next to us, but just outside of our peripheral vision. We can see them when we are open to faith in Christ. Christ saw people on the margins. Christ saw God's vision of beloved community and mutuality. But Christ was not afraid to speak about the brokenness as well. Honest faith, honest faith, recognizes that Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's what Paul says. He says, this saying is sure and worthy of acceptance. You can take it to the bank. You can trust this. Christ came into the world, and that is good news, to save sinners. That is also good news. But how? I think a lot of the times our fears come from places of sin in the world. They come from places of hatred and division. But fear can mask that sin. It can sometimes justify even perpetuating it. But it's important to be honest about sin. Last week I mentioned the old uh, Methodist practice of gathering in small groups and and the first question would be, how is it with your souls? And they'd examine themselves and, and think about how, what the state of their soul was, whether they were really tending towards greater holiness and perfection in the way of Christ. Um, the other part of that was that uh, what would then happen is that everyone in the group would be expected to speak about the sins in their lives, the things that were marring their souls. And this can, of course, become abusive if it turns into gossip and pettiness. It's hard to be vulnerable and to speak about the deep hurts and longings in our lives. It's difficult to open yourself up in that way. But it is also absolutely necessary. And in this letter to Timothy, Paul gives us a great example of this. He gives us an example of what that radical honest faith looks like. He says, look, I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor of the church. Believe you me, I know sin. But his point in admitting that is that if God can save me and give me faith and joy and peace, Timothy, then anyone can receive that grace. Anyone can receive it. It's wonderful, I think, that Paul and Timothy had this relationship where they could be honest with one another like that. And, and small groups in churches tend to provide that space where you know, we don't have to stand up in front of you know, 30 of our closest friends and, and bear our souls to them and admit every fault and blemish on our hearts. I think about the small groups we have here at Union. The only sort of formal small groups we have are our committees, right? This is the only place where three or four members will formally gather together. And I wonder, to all you serving on committees, when was the last time you started a meeting by asking, how is it with your soul? Or did you perhaps begin with, how is it with the boiler? <laughs> How is it with the budget? 
We should be cautious about becoming too busy with the busyness of the details of church life to remember the real business of what we're here for. And what we're here for, well, it says right on that banner, right? Top of the banner. I remember it's one of the first things I saw when I came into the church initially when I got the walk around. It used to be up in the sanctuary. It says right there at the top, be the church. Got a lot of other things underneath it, but be the church is the first thing I always think of when I walk by it coming into the office. What does it mean to be the church? Well, Christ is alive in the church. That's what Paul taught the early Christians whose lives he brought together in churches in places like Corinth and Thessalonica. He said Christ lives through the church because the church is the place where we share life together in Christ. The kind of life that is faith-filled, that is honest and vulnerable, but also a place where we receive assurance and abundant grace and the peace that comes with that. It's a place where we can feel safe, where we can trust where we can be with others who believe like us, who worship God like us, who share a common history and a collective purpose. That is the wonder and the beauty of being in the church. But again, sometimes life in the church can be too much about busyness and not that business of life together. I've been thinking a lot about uh, growth lately and i just wonder what are the what are the right questions about what it means to be the church or to grow the church to 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 live together in christ are we always striving after a kind of relevance to bring people in to to call people into this thing with with grand spectacle or something like that. The problem is, is that faith these days, the kind of faith that Christ taught, the kind of faith Paul is talking about, it's increasingly irrelevant. It's marginal. It's not something that we see in the world. And so I wonder, well, if our goal isn't to be relevant, to be flashy, to, to get people in the doors, then what is the goal? Are we just going to give up on the world? Well, God doesn't give up on the world, and that's good, because six days out of seven, we are the world. We are out there in the thick of it, and God is in the midst of that, too. Faith itself, Paul reminds us, is a gift from God. It comes to us from we know not where. It is already present all around us, but in the busyness of the world, we often overlook it. On Sunday mornings, we get the chance to slow down, to mark time, to listen for the word of a God who is still speaking. And this is supposed to empower us to trust not just on Sunday morning, but when we go out into the world to trust that Christ is going with us, that Christ came to save the world. 
And so we are called to be the church, to fight the good fight with faith. And then the other thing he says is good conscience. We have to have faith and good conscience. Now, conscience is our ability to choose what we do with our lives. It's how we exercise the freedom that we have been given. Conscious, conscience calls upon us, though, because we only have so much time in the day. We only have so much time in this life to do with what we will. Our choices wouldn't matter if we had all the time in the world. We wouldn't put much stock in whether we did this or that one day or another. But the fact is that we don't have an unlimited amount of time. The time is indeed precious to all of us. And so the question is, how are we going to spend that time? How are we going to spend that time? How many times have you felt the sting of a missed opportunity? Or that you made the wrong choice with how to spend your life, your time, this precious thing, whether it was a career choice or a romantic choice or a choice as a parent or a choice as a church. We all recognize those times of regrets when we have counted the cost of our choices. And that's hard. Sometimes we can, we can solve that by realizing that not all of our choices are really ours to freely make. Oftentimes, much of our lives seems like it is beyond control. That's why that prayer by uh, theologian Reinhold Niebuhr is such a wonderful one where he says, he prays, God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to thing change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. It's a wonderful, faithful prayer because it is honest that there are some things we cannot change. There are some things beyond our power. But there are things we need courage to change. But more than anything else, we need the good conscience to tell the difference between the two. And so again, part of being the church is discerning together how we are going to use the resources of our collective lives, what ends we are going to put them towards. And so as we live together, we don't just mark time in terms of budgets or in terms of calendars, days of the weeks, agendas, announcements on the back of your bulletin that tell you moment by moment every task that is set before you. It's true. We have all those things, and they are important. But unless we can place that into a larger story, unless it is done with faith in Christ at work in our midst, it is hard to tell why we would choose to spend our lives this way. More than two decades have passed since 9-11, and, and in those two decades we've had many opportunities to wrestle with the cost of fear and the weight of decisions that were made beyond our control or even those within our control. And how we respond in those moments is, is, is difficult. I was reminded this week of a story um, in my own life 
a few years ago, I served as an intern uh, in the chaplain's office at the VA hospital in Atlanta. I was uh, assigned to the psychiatric intensive care unit there. And typically what my duty was, was to do what was called a spiritual assessment. I would go in uh, to a new patient's room and introduce myself as being from the chaplain's office. I would ask them some basic questions about their church affiliation, their spiritual beliefs, those sorts of things. And oftentimes it was very pro forma, and I got used to doing it that way. I got used to the, the role. It was still terrifying to a certain extent. It was the first time I'd really been in an intense kind of pastoral role, but I felt like I was doing something. I actually purchased this Bible at the time because I needed something to carry around with me. Uh, and more often than not, it was more just like a, a security item. I didn't really use it that much. But it made me feel better. It made me feel like I was really a pastor when I walked into the room. But one day, it was in the middle of the shift, and I had a spiritual assessment that I had to do, and a group of doctors came out of uh, the patient's room, and I went in, and I introduced myself, and I said, Chaplain, I need to talk to you. And I thought to myself, this is great. I am needed. I am wanted. I am here. I am ready for this. And the man, he was in his mid-40s. Um, he, he, he looked pretty normal by all accounts, but in the state he was in, he was panicked and, and anxious. And he said to me, Chaplain, you see, I'm a good Christian. I am born again, but Satan has been tormenting me. Of course, being the intellectual liberal Protestant that I am, that immediately made me uncomfortable. But then he said this, he said, Satan is tormenting me, coming at me from all sides because of what I have done. And then he said, I have done terrible things. He said, I served in special forces in Afghanistan and Iraq. I have seen things, I have done things that are awful in the sight of God. And I know about those things. And Satan just keeps putting them front of mind. And at the time, I was sort of overwhelmed by, by having him unburden himself in this way, having him share the weight of his conscience with me. He said, I've killed people. I've killed women and children. And they said, check the bodies. And I didn't want to, but I followed orders. I checked the bodies. And it... At the time, I recognized that what was going on in his mind was something that psychologists call moral injury. It's a trauma brought on by something, not that has been done to you, but that you have done. Often something you don't feel like is something you chose to do. Something that was forced upon you. And um, I became curious about moral injury while I was in graduate school. It's in, interesting psychological and ethical phenomenon. I've been studying it in books, but here it was in the room with me. And so at first I had this sort of intellectual detachment of like, wow, what a fascinating moment this is. I'm going to have to remember this. And then I remembered why I was in the room. And he says to me, he says, 
Chaplain, can you forgive me? I, I need forgiveness for this. And again, in my mind, I said, well, I am not a Catholic priest. I'm a Protestant. In our tradition, priests have no special power. I can't somehow lay hands on this man and, and forgive his sins from him. That is God's job, not mine. I, tr I tried to formulate that as a, as a thought to share with him. But boy, does it feel hollow to say something like that to someone in such a state. And so I, uh, I grappled with what to say. I said, I, I can't forgive you. I said, God can, but I can't. And then we sat in silence for a long time. And um, I got out the old trusty go-to resource, and I started paging through. And I came to this passage in Ephesians. It's a familiar one, I think. Um, he had said that he was, he just felt weak, like he was at the end of his rope. And, um, and I came across this passage. You can see it's still underlined here. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, and against the forces, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And I was like, that's the ticket. There it is. He needs the whole armor of God to stand against the wiles of the devil because his struggle is not with the people he killed, the lives he took, the struggles in his own life since then that have resolved from that. It was, it was in his mind, it was the wiles of the devil, it was the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And these days, in this world, we tend to think that every problem is solvable by some new technology or some new diagnosis or something like that, that we have all the techniques we need. But I couldn't help but think this man is dealing with something beyond that account, beyond what I'd read about moral injury. He was contending with the deepest reality of his own pain and of the darkness of the world Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so you may be able to withstand on that evil day. And having done everything, to stand firm. The famous part of this passage is about uh, putting on, you know, the belt and the shoes and the helmet and the sword. And they all have their different symbolic roles in the life of faith. But the one that stood out to me on that day, that again is underlined here, it says, as shoes for your feet, put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. Whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. And in our scripture this morning, Paul says that that is faith and good conscience. Trust in the gospel itself is part of what you need to then proclaim the gospel to people. 
If we trust in the gospel, fear gives way to hope. So I I shared those words with him and then I prayed with him and I left and I couldn't help but feel like I had somehow failed him because I hadn't given him what he wanted. I hadn't been able to lay my hands on him and say, you are forgiven. But as I was riding home, I, um, I was riding my bike home through a sort of back route, went by a soccer field, I remember, and I just, I was struck as I was replaying this moment in my mind about how far down this man was in his life. By his own choices, by the circumstances he had lived in, he was far down in the deep. And yet, the words that I had spoken to him assured us, both of us there, that God was down there in the deep with him. And the words came to my mind uh, from Paul's letter to the Romans, while we were yet sinners, while we were yet sinners, while we were down in the deep and the dark and the muck, Christ died for us. Now, if you have fear Those don't sound like good words. Christ died because of us. If you are afraid of God, then you realize, oh, I was one of the people who was responsible. I was in the crowd shouting crucify because I have done things that do not look well in the light of God's eyes. But if you hear those words with faith, Christ died for us. Christ came to the world to save sinners, then what you realize is the depth of that grace that God has for each of us. And I was, I was overwhelmed by it. I was struck to the ground by it. The same thing had happened to Paul even as he was persecuting the church. He was knocked off his horse one day and rendered blind by Christ until one of Jesus' disciples came and healed him in Christ's name. And his conversion was complete. He opened his eyes, the scales fell away, and he realized what it meant to have faith in Christ. And you know, that was a long time ago, and I still feel like there are many days in which the scales are still on my eyes, but at least we get these brief moments where we see what Paul is talking about. When Paul talks about how grace overflows from God into our lives. And so we are indeed called to fight the good fight. It's not a fight against other people, but against the emptiness and the darkness that crowds out faith with fear If even Paul, that persecutor of Christ, can be saved, then why not me? If even that man suffering his, from the ills of his conscience can be saved, then why not us? And that is good news, friends. It is good news that we have to enjoy here on Sunday mornings. It is good news that we have to share all the days of our lives, everywhere that we go, because this is a world that needs that good news. 
and it is just overflowing out of God. Psalm 23, it says, my cup runneth over. Well, that's because God's cup runneth over into our lives. And to be quite honest, I don't think, I think I've shared that story maybe once or twice with one or two, two people. But I thought it was important to share it here today because Paul shared his story with Timothy. In the Gospel of John, it says that the scriptures are written, the stories there are told, so that we may come to believe that we may come to have faith, that we may come to trust that Jesus is the Christ and that through him we may have life. And that is something that is precious and joyful and peaceful to have in ourselves. But how much more wonderful is it when we have the chance to share it with other people? So I don't know if you have a story like that in your own life, Maybe you do, maybe you don't. If you don't, just wait. God will come and find you one of these days and give you one of these stories. But if you do have that story, if you have been given that faith, if you have been blessed with that gift, then in good conscience, we gotta share it. We gotta share it with one another here as part of the church and with the world with everyone we meet, everywhere we go. Fight the good fight. Amen. I hope this week's message has spoken to you. If you have thoughts or responses to the message you'd like to share, feel free to reach out on social media at Church by the Park or by contacting us through our website, churchbythepark.org. There you can find more information about our life together as a church. We're about to begin a new program year here at Union, which means the return of Sunday School, a bunch of really exciting sermon series to come, and chances for both service and fellowship. I'd especially invite you to come and be a part of worship next Sunday, September 18th, as we celebrate Rally Day with a blessing of the backpacks for the younger kids and an ice cream social after worship for the children of God of any age. We'll also be beginning a three-part sermon series called In the Beginning next Sunday, you are very welcome to come and attend in person in the sanctuary at 55 Rhodes Avenue in East Walpole, online via Facebook Live at facebook.com slash churchbythepark, or by continuing to subscribe or follow this podcast. Until next time, may the peace of Christ be with you.